Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from the What Fresh Hell podcast. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And this week, we are talking to Julie Lithcott-Hames. She's an author, speaker, and activist who believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. She's the author of the anti-helicopter parenting bestseller, How to Raise an Adult. She's also the author of the memoir, Real American, about her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. She's a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean who serves on the boards of Common Sense Media and LeanIn.org, among others. And her new book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Julie says it's a compassionate beckoning into the freedoms and responsibilities of adulthood. Welcome, Julie. Amy and Margaret, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Thanks for being here. Julie, you literally wrote the book on young adults who weren't ready for adulthood. And is it mostly our helicopter parenting that (laughs) made those kids that way? I think it might be, Amy. (laughs) We're to blame, right? We did it. I'm certainly not blaming them. Let's put (laughs) it that way. I'm not blaming them. If you don't know how to adult in the way, say, your parents or grandparents might have, it's not your fault. There's something about the milieu, the community, the way in which you were raised that has impeded your progress. And I'm here to, to root for such young adults to figure it out. These young adults, we have people raising young adults, and we have a lot of moms listening who are themselves young adults. And so this idea of adulting, it's somewhere that you're heading for with your kids, and often as a middle-aged adult, still heading there as yourself. Absolutely. It is most definitely a mindset adulting. It's, you know, we can say and joke, it's about, do I know how to file my taxes or change a tire? And yes, it is those things, but it's so much more. It's this mindset where you know, hey, I'm in charge. Sometimes you want to say, crap, we're the adults. And you realize, oh, it's me, you know, and then that becomes not a frightening thing, but a delicious thing. Like, heck yeah, I'm in charge. I can figure this out. It's on me and I will. And then we get to the space of really figuring out who we are, what we want out of this one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver called it. And we sit in that space of understanding, I get to decide, I get to choose. And then we hope and pray for many decades of good health, having finally figured out who we are and what we want. We just want to be that person for as long as possible. You talk in the book about developing a horizontal relationship with your parents, that that's sort of the first goal for 
sort of young adults leaving the home for the first time. And you tell a funny story about the moment when you first realized that you were in fact an adult now who had that horizontal relationship. Yeah. So the horizontal relationship is in contrast to the vertical relationship where your parent is superior to you in the sense of the authority, the decider, the problem solver, the fixer, and you're subordinate to them. That's how childhood certainly begins. And then we're supposed to spend these 18 to 21 to 25 years moving that relationship from vertical to horizontal. The parents need to be focused on that, teaching their kids more skills. And the kids as they age into adolescence, into teenage years and into early 20s have to be focused on, wait a minute, how can I get on a parallel with my folks where we can all have confidence that I know how to take care of business? My moment of knowing I had reached that horizontal status happened. I had just graduated from law school back east. My husband and I were, my new husband, married two years, moving out to California for me to start with a law firm. The moving truck is taking our belongings from Massachusetts to California. We're staying with my parents on Martha's Vineyard for the week. It's going to take the moving van to travel across America. My mother's about to put dinner on the table and I check our voicemail. This was back in the days where voicemail ruled the world. It was the mid-90s. <laughs> Remember that, kids? Oh, children, there used to be a thing called voicemail. <laughs> Remember? Okay, voicemail. And I had a voicemail saying from Beacons, my moving van company. And they said, please call, it's urgent. <laughs> so I called and I can smell the dinner mom is putting about to put on the table, but I'm just, I call Beacons and they inform me that there has been a fire in our moving van, that our belongings from the wedding stuff, you know, the wedding, the furniture we had bought with the money we got for our wedding and the photo albums and the love letters my husband had written me every single day that first summer we were apart, you know, and our Jeep was, everything was in that van. And I get this call saying your van is on fire, you know, and we can't tell you more because it's still (laughs) smoldering its way across America. But when it arrives, you can come inspect your belongings And I thank the lady and I hang up and I announce to the room, my dad, my mother, and my husband, basically the basics. Beacons called. There was a fire in our truck. We won't know the extent of the damage until it gets to Oakland, California, and we're to call this number in three days. My husband came toward me with eyes wide open with that, oh no, look on his face. He gave me this huge but quick hug. We stared at each other for a nanosecond. My parents said, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. That's awful. And they hugged us and there was nothing in them as we sat down to dinner. There was nothing in them that said, you know what? We better take care of this for these kids. We were 25 and 26. It was on us. They knew it. We knew it. We knew this was our problem to handle. And I kind of, sort of, in some ways might have wanted someone else to take care of this big, scary, frightening, sad thing. And yet, as I say in the book, you know what? I didn't. I knew it was mine. Dan knew it was ours. And we didn't want our parents to swoop in and handle it. This was our problem that we were going to face head on. And we did. And we experienced the satisfaction of handling it the financial it, the replacing the items it, the, you know, are we spending this 
settlement check appropriately, which the answer was no, we blew it. That happens. And that would become a financial lesson that we would have to learn. So that was my adulting moment. That was my tag your it moment. I think what's interesting about that is that those moments continue to happen. I'm almost 50 years old and I'm still having, my mom has passed away and I'm still looking around for her several times a month. Like, oh, mom, it's time to come help. But I think Amy knows I love a good metaphor. And this metaphor of the vertical to horizontal shift really makes sense to me. And let's talk a little bit about what gets in the way of that shift happening. What are the challenges in making that shift happening? And what's kind of the timeline of that shift? If Is it shifting at a consistent pace from, you know, childhood to adulthood? Or are there times where it shifts kind of quickly and then stop shifting for a while? Let me first say that the shift, I'm picturing now this metaphor, which I've never used before, or this structure, (laughs) picturing it. And I'm picturing the axle in the middle as love. Yes. So love is always there. Okay. So we're not talking about you love your kids any less, or they love you any less or more. It's not about love. It's about who's responsible for getting stuff done. Okay. Right. The shift is supposed to gradually take place. The minute your child is learning to walk, those of you with a one-year-old, right? The minute your child is learning to walk, you can choose to overparent and do it for them or try to, or you can choose to sit back, make sure they're not going to fall on a sharp object, but otherwise sit and nod and applaud and cheer them on as they fall and pull themselves back up and fall again and pull themselves back up and fall again and finally have legs that are strong enough and a core that knows how to balance itself so that they can stand however imperfectly and you don't shout, what's wrong with you? We, <laughs> we stand perfectly in this family. You applaud and you take a video for the grandparents, okay? And then as they learn to go from standing to walking, what are they going to do? Are they going to be perfect? No, they're going to fall again. And if we can keep that visual in mind evermore, every single thing they need to learn to do is theirs to learn. If we take our hands and put two little fingers under their tiny armpits to walk behind them, you know, like hold them up as they're trying to walk so they don't fall, so they walk, that's not walking. That's us literally propping our children up to get them where they need to go. If you have young ones, this is your opportunity to get it right from the start. Unlike me, Mm. I've written this book on the harm of overparenting. I was overparenting my own kids all along, as it turns out. Okay. They're 21 and 19 now. I have a lot of things I wish I could do over. Okay. So it's supposed to be this gradual teaching. You go from complete dependency on your parents, right? being carried in their bodies, held in their arms to being able to stand on your own two feet and then walk a tiny distance and then walk more and do more with your hands and do more with your brain. And as parents, we're supposed to delight in what skill is my kid ready to learn next? Is it tying their shoes? Are they ready to start to try that? Awesome. Are they going to be perfect? Heck no. Okay. If they're stacking up, you know, the donut stack toy for toddlers, it's like a pot of bowl. Yeah. Like with inner tubes in different colors. Yeah. If we're over-parenting, if we're keeping it too vertical, like we're going to handle it all for them. We're going to sit down there on the, like, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. The toy comes and you're supposed to be like, look at this toy, kid. Isn't this amazing? And you sit down there with them and you go, oh, the purple one. It's the biggest. Let me put it on. And you can demonstrate once. Okay. Or maybe again, every few days. But 
you must back yourself off because guess what? You do know how to stack the toy. <laughs> Why? Because you are a grown up, darn it. Okay. It's your kid's turn. And the only way they learn is by figuring it out. So you have to have the excruciating patience. And that's what parenting is to say, you know what? I could take care of it, but I'm not gonna because it's their turn to learn. You sit down a good ways away so that you don't nudge the right color donut toward them so that you don't put your hand on top of their hand and carry the right color donut to the pole. <laughs> right. Right. That is over parenting. And it applies whether they're two or five or eight or 12 or 18 or 25. There are equivalents of these funny things I just shared at the level of, you know, infancy and toddlerhood. You talk in the book about, you call them life's beautiful F words, and falling is one of them. But these are the things you need to do to become an adult. This is part of adulting, right? Yeah. Instead of approaching your child as a small dog that you're grooming to be best in breed mm. so that you can enroll them at the Westminster Dog Show and carry that trophy home, this isn't about perfection. This isn't about performance. This is about a young human entrusted to your care by God, the universe, or however you believe we get here. And your job is to shower them with unconditional love, feed them, clothe them, shelter them, and get the heck out of their way so they can learn the various things they need to learn. And the way they learn is you invite them to participate in the work of family life. You say, we're making dinner now, and you walk toward the kitchen and your little ones will follow you. And you have the age-appropriate stool that your three-year-old can climb on and help you. The sooner you engage them in the work of the household, and here I'm quoting the book, Hunt, Gather, Parent by Micklean Duclef, which just came out, which is a perfect companion to my work, which talks about how children grow competent, skilled, confident, and are cheerful and mentally well. Mm. When they're given that membership club card in the family, you belong. Come on, we're making dinner now. Not, oh, could you please maybe help me one day undo the dishwasher? No, you're like, you just declare it. We're not so good when we're over-parenting. We're not so good at asking our kids to be useful to the family. I love that idea of the membership card. You're supposed to be. That's McLean Duclef. I want to give credit where it's due. Her book is magnificent. That is lovely. All right. We're going to talk more about adulting and we will be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So, Julie, in your new book, which is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, you talk about the definition of adulting as being sort of itself problematic, that it's based on sort of markers of adulthood that were set in place like 100 years ago and which have become outdated. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. The old markers were in this order. You are an adult when you finish your schooling, get a job, leave home, marry and have children. And that is a very gendered, a very heteronormative, a very 20th, 19th, and 18th century view of things. Things are different now in so many good ways. Yeah. As I've said, adulting is really a mindset. It is, I know how to do the things, or I'm going to try to figure it out. It's, I want to. That is, I'm not interested in a vertical relationship where someone else is caretaking my every moment. I'm interested in doing for myself. And it's having to. That is to say, some of us grow up so privileged that we don't have to do anything for ourselves because there's a person or two or a whole team of people who are employed to look after us. We can have all the money in the world and lack that ability to really, at the end of the day, take care of business because we've never had to. And this is where there's this beautiful irony. People raised in more challenging socioeconomic circumstances can emerge with far greater capacity uh, to be adults, take care of business, solve problems, make choices, cope when things go wrong. Why? Because they've had to. And I want to underscore this point for those raising young kids be mindful of the ways in which if you do have socioeconomic privilege, be mindful of the ways in which uh, you may be pampering your child's life a little too much so they don't end up kind of knowing how to do anything. They're going to be that 20-year-old who's out in college or out in the workplace who is less capable than kids who came up in a harder family circumstance. And you don't want to do that to them. Don't let your privilege make your children weak. I want to put a finer point on this idea of adulting because it has become such a almost a buzzword at this point. And you sort of see this whole thing of like, oh, these dopey millennials need to take adulting classes and learn how to fill out a checkbook. Like we're talking about something a little bit bigger than that kind of meme form of adulting. Absolutely. I mean, millennials created the meme and created the verb adulting. They were the first to say, I don't know how to, I don't want to, I'm scared to. And my book is most definitely for them. But you can learn how to fill out a checkbook or change a tire on a YouTube video. And so while I give a nod to those basic things in the earliest chapter of the book, I am in this more existential realm of adulting is agency. I can do the task in front of me or darn it, I'm going to figure it out. 
resilience. I can cope when things go badly. You know, I can be with my feelings and honor that and think through what I could have done differently. What have I learned and get back up and keep going. And it's about character. There is more than me in this world. It is not just about me meeting my needs. I have to be conscious of how I interact with my fellow humans. So that's one major, although there's not, that construct isn't sort of how the book is organized. That is probably, those are the three takeaways. If you were to say like, what are the three things you got to focus on? I would say that, but I would also say this, humans are key to our survival. So our relationships with people turn out to be the greatest predictor of our longevity. So this is now, I'm citing the book Friendship by Lydia Denworth. In her book, she talks, she bases it on scientific studies that show the people who live to be healthy into their 80s and 90s, it wasn't about their cholesterol score in their 50s. It was about the quality of their interpersonal relationships in their 50s. So this book is saying this, you know, don't just focus on your work. Don't just focus on your salary. Don't just focus on, you know, what you have been taught matters, like the number of followers you have, or did you make a singular noteworthy achievement? Like, no. Can you be in rewarding, mutually rewarding relationship with other humans? Can people count on you? Can you count on them? Do you have someone you can call in the middle of the night? You know, do you have people rooting for you? Mm. You know, are you rooting for others? These human relationships we have turn out to be essential to our thriving, to our wellness and to our longevity. So this book really leans into you got to take care of the people around you and be cared for by them in return. This sort of symbiosis, this we need one another. We are inherently a social species. And the more isolated we get from community, from family, due to a pandemic or due to a 21st century, which is very technologically intersected, but often, you know, we're not making time for that just kind of casual connection with a friend sitting on a couch, you know, or over a meal, we're too busy. And so this book is inviting us to return a little bit to those older ways where we engaged with each other more synchronously, more deeply, and more meaningfully. You talk in the book about the false allure of the lockstep plan. This really dropped in for me because I have a senior in high school right now. And talking about what he's going to major in in college, he doesn't know. One parent thinks that that's fine. And one parent is like, but if you don't major in the right thing, how are you going to do You know, the, the next 10 steps aren't laid out yet. Can you talk a little bit about the false allure? And is that something that young adults today themselves have? Or is it more that their parents have that and they don't? So the false allure of the lockstep plan is sort of, it's false for two reasons. One, we can plan all we want and we should. Setting plans and goals in motion is how we reach our wildest dreams. But we have to, I say in the book, you know, we plan God laughs. I'm citing a Yiddish phrase that's an English translation of, uh, which is to respect the fact that so much is out of our control. And so, you know, you think I'm going to go to this college, I'm going to major in this, I'm going to go to this grad school, I'm going to have this job, I'm going to meet this person, and and then we're going to have a kid. And so like, awesome, and be respectful of the fact that so many things can get in the way, be able to adapt and move and shift and go to plan B and plan C, if plan A doesn't eventuate. The other thing is, Yes, too often parents are the ones saying, oh, there is a lockstep plan. And by the way, it should look like this. In other words, they are mapping out the major, the college, the career. 
And I'm here as a former college dean where my job was to root for my students to find that inner voice that was saying, you know what I'd really like to do with this life if it was up to me, here's what I would do. I was rooting for them to let that voice be louder and louder and louder in their own heads. And another key element of this book is you are an adult when you can say to that family member, you know what? I know you love me. I love you back. I know you want the best for me. I think I have a sense of what that might be. And I need to go give it a try. Even if you don't understand it, even if you don't believe in it, even if you scoff at it, parent, it's my life. And with all due respect, I need to try to make my way. That is one of the most profound things a human can say to themselves and then out loud to the parent. And you're trying to say it in a respectful, loving way so it doesn't turn into this combative argument. But my book is full of stories of humans who have held to that, who have said, no, 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 this is what I want. I know you don't get it. I know, I know, but it's my life. And ultimately the deep, delicious satisfaction that comes when that human has charted their own path is so enticing that I think the more we see other people doing that, the more we want it for ourselves. And that's definitely something this book tries to offer. And I think it's very useful reading it as a mom of kids who are probably a little younger. They're not quite ready for their turn yet. They're a little on the other side of that. I found it a very useful reminder for myself about it's difficult because not for nothing, moms kind of get a lot of grief for like, oh, you're so into how your kids turn out. Like it's a little bit of a circle where sometimes it's hard to find the winning spot. I think one takeaway for me as a mom from this book was that to keep that sort of open heartedness towards letting your kids take over their own life and not having as much control over that is very stressful, but it also helped me to think about it as being a little free. Exactly. When we feel we are responsible for getting our kid to Harvard, Mm -hmm. when we feel the praise of it, when we feel the fear of it, none of that ultimately is rooted in a very healthy place within ourselves. It's, we're talking about peer pressure. Mm-hmm. And it was peer pressure in middle school, and it was peer pressure in high school, <laughs> and it was peer pressure in our early 20s. And here we are. Thank you very much. I am still so worried yeah. about what my friend, my community, my whatever seems to think about my choices. Let me offer you this. Yeah. If you need your kid to be X, Y, and Z, whether it's a major or a club they get into or a college or a particular school, you need that really badly because you're worried if they don't, then this would be a great conversation to take to a therapist. I have profound respect for the profession and a therapist is the person to whom you can turn and say, you know what? I need these things for my kids. Let's unpack why. And working with a therapist, you will hopefully get to a place where you can say, you know what? It isn't about what my neighbors think. It isn't about what my in-laws think. It isn't about what anyone else is doing. I'm here to try to love this kid into being their best version of themselves. I'm here to teach them chores and character. They merge out of your home knowing how to roll up their sleeves, pitch in, and do the dirty work of life. And with a solid, sterling, solid gold character, which is how they treat others and how they behave around others, that human is somebody everybody will admire. That human will be desired in the workplace. That human will make an amazing mate. And that human will ultimately make you proud, regardless of which college it was Hmm. or how big a salary they earn. You're trying to raise a good human. 
And the best way to raise a good human is to be a good human yourself who isn't freaked out and anxious about every little thing they do, (laughs) you know, but you're taking care of yourself and you're meeting your own needs and you're, you know, it really is a back to basics approach that I hope makes people feel they can relax a little. And it's hard if you're in New York and it's hard if you're in the Bay or LA or Dallas or Chicago or 89 other cities where everyone's stressed out of their mind about the academic performance and the perfection of their children. But you know who's learned this lesson? Families that have had some kind of setback. Mm -hmm. Someone's had a diagnosis. All of a sudden, you get real clear on what matters and what doesn't. It isn't about doing your kids' homework to get them an A, you know, or kind of doing the super secret thing that nobody is aware you're doing to give them the advantage. You just let all that go. And you're like, you know what, so-and-so's. Well, we keep saying, let the pandemic reset some of this for you. Absolutely. Exactly. Here we are, right? Let's talk a little bit more about that after the break. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. (laughs) But all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. We're talking to Julie Lithcott-Hames. Her new book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Julie, you were talking before about becoming an adult means, you know, trying, failing, getting up again. And so as parents, when we're worried about our teenagers and young adults failing and trying and searching and fending, that is adulting. You're arguing in this book, that is the act of adulting, not the job and the promotion and the, you know, the pretty house on the corner, right? So we're actually getting in the way of what adulthood is ideally when we're trying to prevent them from searching. 
Exactly. We're living their life for them. We're planning it out for them and we're handling it when something goes awry and we're sort of fixing and managing and we do it from this loving place, but it ends up meaning we're sort of living their life for them. We're in the driver's seat always and they are forever in the car seat or in the passenger seat. Even if they're 18, they're still strapped into a car seat and you've got the wheel. And we have to be tolerant of the fact that a human, not just tolerant, we have to recognize that life's lessons, the forgotten homework, the party they didn't get invited to, these are opportunities for the kid to learn, oh, gee, I need a better plan in place to remember my homework. Or emotionally with the party they didn't get invited to, you know what? Sometimes I get excluded and that's not fair or that hurts. And we're supposed to sit with them as they have their feelings and say, I love you. And I'm sorry this happened and let them process the feeling and then redirect them towards something that they do have control over. You know, what are we going to make of today since you're not at that party? I find this even with little kids that sometimes I try to look for these opportunities. It's something I've gotten better at by thinking a lot about this. I think that this teacher is not maybe a great fit, or we're having a lot of conflict in this year of whatever, second grade, third grade, that this is actually what life is like. This is a good opportunity to confront what your life will someday look like, which is not everybody was made in a lab to make your life go smoothly. It's the accrued lessons learned that give your child strength, resilience, a sense of, you know, I've been through some stuff before, I'm going to be able to handle the next thing that comes. They develop the skill of how to handle the difficult situation. So that's exactly right. One of the phrases I like to use, it's not original to me is we're not supposed to prepare the road for the child, we're supposed to prepare the child for the road. Mm. We're supposed to help them get stronger and stronger and stronger and more capable by letting them experience the various things that life will throw their way. Just recently, I was working on the research for this episode and it came in very handy because my senior in high school, he had to have a form filled out so he can play his spring sport. So he emailed me, this form has to be filled out so we can play the spring sport. And I wrote back to him like, okay, you're going to college in five months. So I want you to fill out this form. And of course, then it was like, well, I don't know how I'm like, you let me know if you have questions, but you're going to fill it out. I forget the password, you know, then there was all the secondary things of setting up a password and not keeping track of what it is. And now I've forgotten. Now he has to reset. And it worked out. This was a very safe place to fail and have, you know, and it's a sport he wants to play. So he was going to get this form done. But I'm wondering if you're a parent like me, who maybe has smoothed the way to a excessive degree at times, and you want to do a reset with the time you have left with this kid who has gotten very used to somebody folding his laundry for him. How do you do that reset? Because I tend to be like, look, you think I can do it? I tend to like come at it with anger and it's not their fault. Right. As if it's his fault. And it's not. I love that you shared that example, Amy. And I, as a college dean, I would say, bravo. There are too many parents waking their 18-year-old up for high school. <laughs> and then they're going to be waking their 19-year-old up in college because they've never taught their kid that you're accountable for your own actions. Okay. And you feel like, well, it's college and it's so expensive. So I have to wake them up. Well, you were supposed to have taught them that in the fifth grade. Okay. So the reset is you say to your kid, Hey kid, I just listened to this lady on a podcast, or I just read this book. And I saw this <laughs> Ted talk and it turns out, no, you say, Hey kid, I think we've been doing a little too much for you and lovingly intended, of course. But if you're going to be ready to leave our home in five months or a year and a half or three years, whatever it may be, it's time for you to start to be responsible for more of your own things. So we're not going to go from zero to a hundred. We're not going to go from doing it all for you to just 
abandoning you. No, we're going to teach you how to do for yourself. And so let's pick three things that we can start to transfer to you. Let me pause here and say there's a four-step method. This is now not what you say to your kid, but this is for parents. There's a four-step method for teaching any kid any skill. First, you do it for them. Then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. And finally, they can do it independently. Mm. So if you've been doing step one, filling out all their forms, even though they're 18, and you're trying to move to step four, they fill out their forms, don't neglect steps two and three. Okay, step two is you do it with them. That's where you say, sit down with me, honey. You know, I've always made your plane reservations. Now I'm going to teach you how to navigate these travel websites. And you say, here's what we do. And you narrate out loud. You're doing the work, but they are there and you're narrating and you're kind of saying, see, any questions, right? You're teaching. You do that enough times, you can move to step three. You're still there for the just in case. If it's making travel plans, it's you don't have to literally be there because it's a laptop and them, but you might be in the kitchen. You say like, let me know if you have any trouble, I'm here. And they can still ask you questions. Step four is they can make their own arrangements. They can fill out their own forms. They can figure out how to restore the password without you having to be there. So steps two and three are critical. In the driving metaphor sense, it's they're in the car seat, step one. Step two, they're in the passenger seat and you're driving. Step three, they're driving. You're still in the passenger seat. Step Mm -hmm. four, you're not in the car. They're driving. Every single skill this applies to. Wow. That is such solid advice. That Don't say we never gave you anything. That is such solid advice right there. Like, it's just such a simple way to picture. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cute little cartoon on my website. Yeah, let me tell you, The Atlantic magazine did a lovely little animated cartoon of these four steps with my voice as the voiceover. It's on my website. So let's put that in the show notes because it's yeah. adorable and the visual really helps. For sure. And let me tell you, this works with a three-year-old. This works with an eight-year-old at the snack bar in the pool. Try to think of this. Is this something they might be able to do? Absolutely. Madeline Levine, who's an amazing psychologist and author here in the Bay Area, she says, don't do what your kid can already do for themselves, what they can almost do for themselves, or what is simply just your ego need to get done on their behalf. Okay. Mm. We're supposed to be looking for the opportunities constantly for them to learn. Right. And let's not be in such a rush that we have to tie their shoes until they're eight because we were too busy to slow life down. So the three-year-old could learn to tie their shoes. Let's not be so busy that we always carry them across the street, even though they're 11. I mean, you're not carrying your (laughs) 11-year-old, but if you're looking both ways as they blindly follow you, you haven't taught your kid to cross the street. Let's not be so obsessed with our own ability to do everything perfectly, like stack the dishwasher. Oh, I can do it better than they can. Well, of course you can. You're the grown up. That one hits a little (laughs) close to home. Okay. That one hits a little close to home. I'm telling you, I've done all these things. I was cutting my 10 year old son's meat. Yeah. That was my aha moment. I cut his meat. I'm telling parents at Stanford, back off of your 18 year old. (laughs) I come home and I cut the meat of my son. And that was when I was visited by Dickens's ghost of Christmas future who said, Julie, if you ever want this boy to be independent, you have to stop cutting his meat. We've all been there. Like This is what we need to keep in mind. We're not supposed to foster a continual dependence on us. And if we need that psychologically, go get therapy, right? You've not succeeded if you've done everything for your kid. You've succeeded if your kid emerges from your house and can do for themselves, barring a significant disability where a human might need to be caretaken for the rest of their life. Barring that, our offspring are supposed to be able to thrive without us because we will be impaired, dead, and gone one day. And our job is to prepare them to be able to stand on their own two feet. 
Let's talk about parents, caretakers, people who are working with kids who maybe are outside of the mainstream. Sometimes I think that moms of special needs kids, they sometimes feel left out of these conversations. But I actually think there's a lot in this book that speaks to people who have kids across the spectrum. 100%. This new book, Your Turn for Young Adults Struggling, really centers the fact that one in two 18-year-olds has some kind of diagnosis for a learning difference or for a mental health challenge. So I am 100% normalizing, quote unquote, all human conditions, okay? And folks who have various challenges will find, I hope, will feel seen in this book. Mm. But let me speak directly to parents of kids with special needs. I actually got to do an article for Parents Magazine some years ago about the lesson that parents raising kids with special needs learn sooner than parents raising typically developing kids, which is the respect and humility all parents should have around so much is out of our control. Right? How can I love the heck out of this kid and support them in being as capable as they are instead of let me micromanage this kid so that they're perfect at every single thing. Okay. The ADHD, the type one diabetes, these things teach us like, wow, okay, this kid's got some real stuff that they're going to contend with. How can I support this kid now and continue along the years to teach this kid to do more and more for themselves so one day they can manage their own executive function issues and one day they can monitor their own blood glucose? Mm -hmm. The type 1 diabetes community is, I think, a great example of what's changed. And I'm not maligning or dissing anybody who's supporting a, a kid with type 1 diabetes. The point I'm making is 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we did not have a device in our hands that would allow us to monitor someone else's blood glucose from a distance. But now we can. And so we've decided I've got to make sure I'm always on top of my kid's situation instead of what parents 20 and 30 and 40 years ago had to do, which was I got to teach my kid to be responsible for themselves. Not when they're three, not when they're seven, but you want to know when you launch your kid out into the college world if they've got ADHD, if they've got type 1 diabetes, if they've got a situation, you hope to have raised a kid who's very aware of their situation. They've been informed. They've had the chance to learn. They've had supports and resources. They feel empowered to access resources instead of ashamed, right? That's what you want. A kid who can self-advocate and kids who have a situation ought to emerge from our homes capable of advocating for themselves and maybe more capable than the kid who's never really had a situation to deal with, but still doesn't know how to do very much for themselves. In other words, the disability can be the reason they learn to take care of business a little bit sooner than the more micromanaged and overheld kid. It could go either way. Yeah. Julie, you say, and I want to make sure to make this point clear, you say that no matter what our challenge is, that we as humans are hardwired to want to accomplish stuff so that we want our kids to be adulting, not only because they should, and that's how the world works, but because we want to do these things. We feel better as people when we are accomplishing things. We're hardwired for that. I mean, just picture the deep satisfaction you have felt when you have planted a garden and your knees are dirty and you're sweating and you're tired, but you're like, look what I just did. Or you have built a deck on the back of your house, or you have fixed that thing that was banging on the roof, or you have made a beautiful meal. You know, what we feel satisfaction when we do things with our hands and our minds and our bodies, when we exert ourselves and complete a task. We feel good. We don't want to be micromanaged in life. Overparenting is 
a simple term to describe the same thing as micromanagement in the workplace. How Mm. terribly dissatisfying is it if your boss is like, well, let me just handle this piece for you. You're like, stop. Come on. It's my project. No, thank you. I appreciate the offer of help, but I've got this. Or the mind says, at least I want to try. The deep satisfaction comes from completion of the task ourselves, not, well, I kind of did two thirds of it, but then this other person help me. I mean, if we need help, yes, we want to ask for it and we want to receive it. But to be overhandled, overmanaged, overhelped contributes to this psychological malaise. It contributes to anxiety in kids and to depression. We are robbing them of that innate sense of I can, I can cope. You know, that's what happens when we overhelp. So whether we're eight or we're 18 or 28, 38, 48, we are yearning to make our way down this path that is ours to lay. We want to be loved and cared about along the way, but we do not want someone else to lead our life for us. Oh, I got goosebumps. (laughs) That's so good. Julie, tell us where we can find your work on the internet and your new book. The internet is replete with places (laughs) to find my work. Thank you. My website is julielitcotthames.com. That's my long name without the hyphen, dot com. All of my social handles, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are Hames. I might even get on TikTok. Who knows? Mm. And my new book, Your Turn, this compassionate beckoning to anyone struggling with adulting is on sale everywhere books are sold in all formats. I'm here. I'm rooting for all of us to make it. And my books are all geared toward how can I participate in removing obstacles from people's paths? That's what I'm about. I believe in all of us. Fantastic. We loved talking to you. What a great conversation. So many good takeaways. This was so great. So helpful. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate you. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks.